Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Ruth Garrett Milliken, Distinguished Professor Emerita at the University of Connecticut. Her new book, Beyond Concepts, Unicef's Language and Natural Information, is just out from Oxford University Press. Kant famously asked the question, how is knowledge possible? In her new book, Milliken responds to this question from her characteristic naturalistic and specifically evolutionary perspective. Milliken has long been a leading figure in theorizing about language and thought. Her latest work considers the clumpy world that organisms confront and the problem of how we recognize the same objects and properties again, as well as their kinds and categories. Our cognizing machinery includes unitrackers, whose job it is to track these items and channel information of the same item to one place, which she calls a unicept. And while each of us has distinct unitrackers and unicepts, they can be attached to the same word in a public language, and words themselves are seen as lineages of reproduced signs. There's plenty to talk about in the book, and there's plenty we talked about in the interview. So let's turn to the interview. Uh, hello, Ruth Milliken. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hello, Carrie. Nice to be here. I'm very honored and pleased to be talking to you, to you about your, or with you, about your new book, Beyond Concepts. Um, before we get to the book itself, um, I thought, you know, because you, many of our listeners will be to some extent, you know, certainly familiar with, with who you are, to some extent uh, also familiar with your work, at least in broad outline. Um, we'd like to start with a, a question about, you know, you, the, the interview themselves about, you know, how they got to philosophy and how they came to write this book. And, um, you know, despite the fact that many people will be familiar with, with you and with your work, I think it would still be a, um, an interesting uh, way to begin to get um, some idea of, you know, how you became attracted to philosophy and how you came to work on the particular topics that you have. Well, I guess I didn't even know there was such a thing in, as philosophy until... I went to college. I went to Oberlin College, and there it was required. Um, you had to have a, a course in philosophy, and luckily I took it in my sophomore year because then I could major in it. If I'd taken it later, I probably couldn't have changed. But um, th it was the teacher I had, I think, who really brought me into philosophy. His name was Paul Schmidt. He had he was a Yale graduate, and he ran his classes completely by Socratic method so that you were brought into thinking about problems, uh, ancient problems and modern problems immediately 
And he always made you feel as though you actually might come up with the answer. <laughs> anyway, I was absolutely fascinated by the topics. I had never heard anybody talk about topics like that before. So I, I actually skipped the infirmary one, jumped out of the infirmary one day, snuck out <laughs> when I was sick to go to his class. I was so fascinated. So, so, but, so I majored in philosophy. Um, but then I was a uh, couple, couple of years, for a couple of years after, uh, I was just doing various things. She should teach you little kids to play violin out in Berkeley and <laughs> things like that, taking photographs. <laughs> anyway, um, but my friend Ernie Hook, who's, his father was Sidney Hook, who you might have heard of. as a very, very well-known political philosopher. Anyway, uh, Ernie and I had taken logic together. We were the only two people that took symbolic together at, at Oberlin, and so we knew each other quite well, and he was out in Berkeley. And he just simply arrived at my house one day with his portable typewriter under his arm and an application blank for Yale, and he said, you're going to apply to Yale Graduate School. <laughs> so he wrote it all down, and I applied to Yale Graduate School, and so that's how I began. Um, and then you you came to be writing about, you know, philosophy of mind. I mean, you 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 change the field in a way, I mean, in a, in a fundamental way. Well, I, I, when I was at, at Yale, I thought I was going to write a dissertation on what I called attitudes, on what attitudes are, which are, you know, be related, I suppose, to uh, work people doing on emotions. But, and somehow or other, it turned out that I had to think about some more basic kind of epistemological problems before I could even think about that. So I've never got back to the thesis problem. I'm still trying to do the underpinnings. <laughs> right. So, um, I mean, you mentioned in, in the book towards the, the beginning that, you know, the broad theme is this, the Kantian question of, of how knowledge is possible. Um, and you approach it, you know, as, as many people, many listeners will know from a naturalistic and specifically evolutionary um, perspective on how we, you know, obtain and, and store and, and generate knowledge, uh, you know, generate, you know, concepts, or in this case, UNICEF. So we'll, we'll get into that in a second. Um, but you start the book um, with a certain vision of, you know, what the world is like that we think about that we may have knowledge about. Um, and you describe it as a, as a clumpy or, or messy world um, that presents the organism with, um, you know, with a, a lot of problem distinguishing, you know, which clumps kind of cohere, which which are um, uh, which are different clumps from other clumps, and which are the same clump over time, uh, and from different perspectives. Um, so, can you say something about um, the world that, as you see it, that we that we are that the organism that wants to know the world, what what that world is like. Um, that they're confronting um, in terms of the, the clumps and then the, the categories and, and kinds that, um, that are out there as well. Yeah, the, uh, the thought is that if the world were not structured the way it is, we really couldn't have such a thing as thought. That thought is dependent upon the fact that the world organizes itself in a certain way. Um, and the basic, the basic idea here is that the world organizes itself into clumps we can think first of individuals, clumps of individuals that are like one another in a whole lot of different ways, many of them, and some of them will not be, you know, they will have, they won't all have exactly the same characteristic, but, so there won't, won't be a definition for them, but they will have similar overlapping characteristics 
Um, and there will be a reason for this. This is very important that there will be a reason for this. So the a paradigm a, a example would be a species. So one dog is like another dog for a good reason, right? There are causal reasons that connecting one dog with another. Anyway, the fact that the world comes in clumps like this um, means that it's possible to use induction. So if you uh, if you discover that there's a clump dog, then it becomes reasonable to suppose that a characteristic you see in one dog may well show up in another. So think, for instance, of a veterinarian uh, where they're investigating something about dogs. They experiment on two or three dogs, and they figure that this might be true of all dogs. If it's <laughs> so, it's you know, it's, we were constantly um, generalizing really from from just a few examples. And the only way that we could do this is because the world comes in, comes in kind of clumps like that. And so do spaces between these clumps. I mean, there isn't really anything, if, if you tried to sort of think of possible creatures running between uh, dogs and cats even, you wouldn't find any way to to uh, sort of make one just like the next, almost just like the next, almost just like the next, to get from cats to dogs, where there wouldn't be, as a matter of fact, you'd find there was nothing whatsoever somewhere in there. There'd be a big space somewhere in there. Uh, things don't fade into each other. Um, except, of course, within clumps that do. I mean, there, there also are, you know, there, there, the, some of these clumps are pretty vague, you know, exactly what is going to count as a member of the club is, is not clear. Um, so my, anyway, my claim is that the, the thought is only possible because there are such clumps. We can latch onto them, and this is why inductions are possible. And that's why we can have knowledge. Okay, so... Um... Uh, you know, in, in traditional, I mean, there's there's a very helpful glossary, I should say, at the at the back of the book, um, which you know listeners can can look at at their leisure. But um, uh, so the vocabulary I use to ask questions will not necessarily be your vocabulary, um, but will you know. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, so, you know, traditionally we think about, you know, and, and this, you know, Kant as well, but we think of, you know, we have concepts or ideas, um, you know, to use the empiricist term, um, and we get sensory input, we store and organize this information some way about the world in concepts or ideas, um, and that's all very, very, you know, vague, but I mean, the, the vocabulary and, and some sort of mental um, uh, entity of some sort um, is, is clearly what's, what people are, been, are trying to capture there. Um, you, however, you know, you introduce, I mean, as the, as the subtitle shows, the, the concept of a, of a unicept um, and then the associated concept of a, a unit tracker. Um, and since you know these two these two concepts are are central to the to the book, um, maybe you can tell us a bit about unicepts and about unit trackers and and you know how the unicepts are distinct from concepts, um, and uh, and that will that can get us started. I think I take it that the most fundamental job that cognition has for any animal, the most difficult job really is 
to be able to recognize the same thing again through many, many, many different sensory uh, inputs, right? I mean, a, a, a child learns to recognize a dog by its bark, by its by what it looks like from many angles, by what it feels like, by what, by, and eventually you learn to recognize information about dogs by reading the word dog. But uh, anyway, I take it that, that really a very, very fundamental thing that any animal has to do, any higher animal has to do, is to learn to recognize the same thing again. If you, don't, you can't recognize the same thing about, again, any knowledge you have of it is going to be useless, right? You can't apply it. You can't recognize the same thing again. So, um, all right, then the claim is also that, as I said, that the world the world comes in clumps. And so what one is really trying to do is to recognize these clumps. So that the dog is a clump, a whole a bunch of animals that are pretty much like each other, maybe some at the fringes that, that, that are, are different in some basic ways, but a kind of a clump. You have to learn to recognize that, an instance of that clump, so that you can apply knowledge that you learned before of, you know, of dogs, of whatever. Um, so this is true not just, of course, of, of uh, things like species and kinds. That's also true of properties. Um, perceptual constancy is mechanisms are designed precisely to do this, to learn to recognize it's the same color under many different lighting conditions, <laughs> the same shape under many different from many different perspectives, etc. But anyway, let's take this to be a very fundamental job. And what I a unitracker, I take to be simply um, you can think of it as a neural apparatus whose job is to learn over time to recognize the same thing again and to channel information that's gained about that thing into sort of one one place so that, that, uh, that those various pieces of information can interact with one another. Um, yeah, so that, that, so that, yeah, so that everything you know about, uh, about some substance will be in a form that you know that it's about the same thing <laughs> and can use it as about the same thing. So if it has five characteristics, uh, you know that they're all characteristics of the same thing and you might be able to infer something from that, you see. Uh, so that's what a, a, a unit tracker is, is, is uh, some kind of neural net, I suppose. Very complicated. Um, a unicept then is simply uh, what the unit tracker feeds into that manages in some way or another to store information that's been acquired by, by the unit tracker by tracking the same thing over time. Um, so the unicept then is what basically figures in, say, on a propositional knowledge about something, practical knowledge about something. Um, so you can think of it as... Um, but it wouldn't hurt to think of it in terms of a, as initially at least, as a folder. People are, have been talking now since, since actually Strawson began this really um, about thinking of 
a folder in which you put information, which is would be all the information about Johnny or all the information about dogs would be put in a folder. But um, I think that that's there's only one thing that's bad about that, and that is that on that model, things that you know about Johnny or about Fido, um, say that say that the Fido is brown. If you've got brown in the Fido folder, and you've got brown also in the spotty in the uh, uh, rover folder, <laughs> um, the, the the problem is that you have to somehow rather recognize that brown is the same, and the folder analogy won't give you that. So I'm thinking in terms of a more uh, a much more uh, intensive network, which, as a matter of fact, you know, the brain is an incredibly intensive network. Um, in which also properties are recognized by an individual kind of place of storage, uh, which is connected to all of the things that have that property, (laughs) that one knows has that property in the brain. So, uh, all right. So a unit tracker then is something, I have my unit tracker for dogs. You have yours. A unit tracker is an individual thing. It's not a. It is not. Um, it's not like a concept because we share concepts. You don't share unit trackers. You got yours for dog, and I've got mine, and we may have somewhat different ways of recognizing dogs. Vet can recognize dogs maybe in some ways that I can't. Uh, Helen Keller recognized dogs in a very different way, probably from the way you and I do. But she certainly had a unicept for dogs and a, and a, 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 uni, a unicept and a unitracker for dogs. But it, it was very, very different from, from the ones that you or I have. So the unitracker is individual. It's you have yours for a dog and I have mine for a dog. And what they have in common is that they both are focused on dogs. Right? That's out in the world. So it's their connections with the world that makes them alike, not necessarily anything that they have sort of psychologically in common, as it were. They may be, we may have quite different methods of doing the same, same thing here. So it's very unlike a, unlike a concept in that regard. Um, it's also unlike concept in another way. I take it that different people will have different sets of ways of recognizing the same thing and that there will be no way of recognizing that's definitional of dog. Um, so you don't find out, I mean, the way in which words are connected to unicepts is, is uh, that's another story, but um, what, what is not true, <laughs> what is not true is that is that your idea of a dog is, you know, you and I both think about dogs, that what we have in common is that we would identify the same thing as dogs, say, in other possible worlds, or et cetera, et cetera. So the the method of recognition is not what defines what I'm thinking of. It's what I'm recognizing by that method that defines what I'm thinking of. So that's very, very different from thinking of a classical concept where usually you think of, you know, people talk about our concept of a universe, our concept of this, you know, there's no such thing as our concept of, right? No such thing as our unicept of. We all have different ones uh, of 
of the same things. So they're alike only in that they are of the same things. That, um, all right. Does that help, Terry? Yeah. No. So, so let me just, um, you know, since you mentioned, uh, you know, words, I mean, one of the questions that comes up with a, with a sort of a radical, radically individualist, you might say, view um, where UNICEFs are, are, you know, particulars. Um, They're individual people's uh, property. <laughs> property of correct, individual people. Correct. Um, <laughs> right, right. Um, so, so then how, you know, the, the obvious question is, well, then how do we, how do we communicate, right? I mean, we're using this, you know, do we have, it's, it's almost like, I, I was going to say we use the same word dog, but in fact, if my word dog or, or the form of words that I say, you express saying dog and the form of words that you use, um, uh, they, I don't know, I'm, I'm, we're expressing two different unicefs. So what, how does communication happen with all these distinct um, unicefs? What, what grounds the common you know, the idea at least that, that there is a common meaning to dog or something. Is it just the thing out there? But, uh, yeah, the, the common, common meaning for dog is the dog. He's out there. And I have a way of recognizing him. And you have a way of recognizing him. And one of our ways of recognizing him, of recognizing information coming to our senses through dogs, you and me as English speakers, is the word dog. So that, that is actually uh, like the smell of a dog, <laughs> the look of a dog, the word for a dog. But of course, now we're in a whole different dimension. And that is we're in the dimension of what information is, how language works, <laughs> you know, so, uh, which is more in the second half of the book. But, but yeah, I mean, what you have to, uh, you have to put that, to, you have to do that too, in order to, to carry out the project I'm trying to carry out. Yeah, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll get to the second, you know, so the first part is, you know, goes through UNICEFs and, and things like that. And we'll get to the more linguistic stuff um, a little later on. So let me just, let's just continue about this idea of, you know, the dog and then my UNICEF of it and yours. Um, how do the UNICEFs get their reference? I mean, if I may use the word reference in that context. Yeah. Um, okay. So now we're going in and, and, Another direction, also extremely important, um, that all of my work has been sort of backed by evolutionary theory, and I I wanted to say that um, what makes a thought, if you want to know what a thought is about, you've got to look at how it was designed. Um, You have to look at its history, basically, what it was designed for. All right, so we have we have to look to what it was designed for in the case of a of a unicef, and in the case of a uh, well, uh, all right, a word is different dimension here, but yes, you have to look at what it was designed for in the case of a unicef. So what that means is we have to think about actually a development, uniceptual development, right? How do unicefs get formed? And so I have quite a uh, quite a lot to say about that, which I can't unpack here. But uh, but the idea is that the is that the human is designed 
in order to learn to begin to recognize things in the world, to learn to, how to focus in on those things and to develop unicefs, to find the things in the world that can be recognized in many different ways and that have many different properties. In order to find those clumps, we have mechanisms that, we're, uh, we're, that, that are built into us which allow us to learn uh, learn unicefs. Uh, and it's uh, what makes the unicept about it about something is exactly that it's been tuned by a mechanism that's designed exactly uh, to tune it, to recognize uh, and collect information about a certain thing and to, and to use it. So, so yeah, so it's a history, history, really. It's the method of the design of the UNICEF, which is where you find out uh, what it's really supposed to be, what it's supposed to be finding, what it's supposed to be re-identifying. So um, let me just... Um you know, these are so far, we're talking about, you know, fairly ordinary, uh, you know, observational sorts of, or unicefs that have, that, that, that are the result of unitracking of more or less ordinary clumps in the, in the, in the world. Um, but of course we, we go on far beyond that, right? Um, uh, so there's science and there's unobservables and things like that. Um, how are, um, um, how are the 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 kinds of uh, things, I guess, that uh, that ordinary people that you know most of us you know are are fully equipped to track? Um, how does that uh, how do those things relate to the sorts of things that that scientists? I take it that it's the development of of good unit trackers. Um, sometimes can be very easy, sometimes very difficult. I mean, one thing we have to ask here is how do you know that it's the same thing again that you are tracking, you know, that you have, have tracked and put in and sort of stored with this unicept? How do you know it's the same? And so I have, uh, I have to say something quite a lot about that. What kind of criteria as it were, does the brain use or does the mind use in order to realize that it's that it is, in fact, identifying correctly, re-identifying re correctly. Um, and all right, so I, a, a very interesting one that is for sophisticated humans, we're not going to find this in animals, um, is the use of the law of non-contradiction as a regulative principle. In other words, what you were trying to do, or, or what criterion of you're having a focused unicept um, will be that information you find about about it, you know, the ways you have of identifying, you get some information today, it doesn't conflict with the information about the same thing tomorrow that you got tomorrow. In other words, that you, you find yourself not contradicting yourself about this thing. Um, all right, that's exactly, uh, this also, this generalizes to science. So I take it that the, the strongest evidence that a scientist has that he's talking about something real, but she's talking about something real, um, is exactly that she has a number of different ways of identifying that thing. And when she does, she finds the same thing about that the same things are true of it. So it's, uh, it's a matter of having, you know, several different tracks, several different ways. So this, this would be all uh, the more in which that entity is, is caught up in a, 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 a network 
network of theories which allow us to recognize its presence or recognize uh, its operation in a number of different contexts. But that that really is the basic criteria we have that the thing is real. Okay, so uh, let me let me just ask another uh, sort of question. You you know, one of your interlocutors over the year was was Jerry Fodor, who you know recently passed. Um, and one of the one of the sort of brief comments that you make um, is that a, a language of thought, you know, model or implementation model of Unicips would not work. And I was just wondering if you might just say something about that to kind of um, you know, flesh out the view a bit? Yeah, okay. Um, a, a very central theme uh, in the book, and actually in some of my previous work too, um, has been that the act of identifying, the act of, of recognizing uh, a thing is basically an act always of re-identifying. And there are a number of different ways that 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 one could uh, represent identity. And two of the most basic ways you could represent identity. One is the way language does. You say the word "dog" a second time, and supposedly it means the same thing. <laughs> so the identity is found in the identity of kind, the identity of properties, as it were, of the word. So that's to rec- to. Uh, Represent identity by similarity of that sort is the way language works. So if I said John did this, and then a few minutes later I said John did that, you know it's the same thing that's being talked about because I used the same. A, a duplicate. I used a duplicate of the word John in another sentence, right? All right, there's another way to recognize identity, or another way to, to uh, more fundamental, in fact, way to represent identity, and that's by using the very same individual thing again to represent. Now, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, You're making a map, and you have one little mark there that's for Pittsburgh. And you show the relation of Pittsburgh to Boston, to San Francisco, (laughs) to to, uh, Philadelphia, you know, all with the same dot. You don't, you don't duplicate. You don't say Pittsburgh is this and Pittsburgh is that and Pittsburgh is something else, like in language. Pittsburgh is that dot. And it's connected to all of those other things. But it's, it itself is standing. You know, is standing. Now, that, that's, that's the kind of move that Strawson made, uh, which has developed into the current talk about folders, as folders as being uh, what concepts are. Um, but I mean that—that that is the—that's the important thing that Strawson did in his move was exactly to say, you know, sameness is recognized by identity, not by similarity. Um, so I just—I'm just pushing that uh, further. I want to say that uh, that that's the way identity is recognized, just by sameness, uh, actual numerical identity. So I want to I want to show that that's a fundamental way of recognizing identity. Um, so where were we? What did you ask me? The, the, the language of thought. <laughs> yeah, the language of thought. Yeah, the language of thought. Oh, all right. So all right. So one of the things that's wrong with the language of thought is it's like language. It uses duplication instead of identity to to represent identity. 
Um, all right. Um, all right. There's another thing about the language of thought that's very important, and that is. But it's interesting because it's not Jerry Voter. You know, the language of thought idea was developed by people like uh, well, Wilfred Sellers was probably primary, primary here. And the thought there was that what made a belief say uh, or about something was the fact that it was connected by inferential dispositions to a lot of other things that the actual, that the thing was itself connected to. So um, what made a dog, what made your thought of dog about dogs was that having thought of a dog, you think four legs and then you think it barks and then you know you have all of these inferences that you will make given, and also input inferences, things, you know, ways that you will infer that something is a dog by knowing something else about it. So those inferential connections uh, were what made the thought of dog about dogs. So it was the connection, the network, the connection of, uh, of these ideas to one another that gave them their aboutness. So um, in Sellers, for instance, you find him saying explicitly that you can't have a thought of one thing without having a thought of a whole lot of things, right? <laughs> All right, so, um, so that's the language of thought picture, although it's interesting because Jerry Fodor himself, of course, argued against holism. And on, I think his arguments are wonderful. He was absolutely right <laughs> that this kind of holism really uh, uh, can't stand up. But, but anyway, that thought that somehow or other you find out what a comfort, about a concept, what you find, you recognize, you describe a concept by describing its inferential connections to other things. Um, that is usually bound up with the language of thought view has, has been, and that I reject completely. Oh, the, the uh, inferentialism, I, I reject completely. So let me, let me, uh, I mean, we've been talking a lot, you know, sort of touching on the idea of, you know, language and, and, uh, once we get to, that that we we kind of proceed to the to the second part of the book where you talk about info signs and intentional signs and and that sort of a thing. Um, so we kind of build from the unicepts to the um, what I saw as you know at least um, uh, a, a more straightforward extension of your you know previous work in uh, language thought and, you know, other biological categories where, where you're directly talking about, you know, intentions and, and language and things like that. Um, uh, so there's a number of different, um, different topics here, but maybe we should start about, um, you know, the concept of a, of a info sign or a sign that carries natural information, um, intentional signs as a you know, a, a particular type of info sign. Um, and then also, you know, how are these sorts of signs related to the, to, to the UNICEPs? All right, so a UNICEP is trying to collect information over time and perhaps from various perspectives about the same thing. It's trying to recognize the same thing through various different signs of them. You know, think of what's hitting the retina, what's hitting the eardrums as signs of the external world. Um, all right, so this is something that I hadn't talked about at all in my previous work, and that is how do you, how do you think of these signs? What is the relation of these? Uh, what is the relation to what hits your eardrums <laughs> to the thing that you recognize as a trumpet? You know, <laughs> what is the relation here? Um, so. 
All right, so I begin then by trying to give um, a description of what I call info signs. Uh, think of it roughly uh, as what some people used to call, call natural signs. Black clouds mean rain. <laughs> the rings on the tree show how old it is, so, etc. Um, those of trying to, to give a, a right a description of natural signs or what I call them info signs, 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 signs in the natural world that carry information and trying to give a description of what kind, what, what it is for us there to be a sign that carries information in the natural world, right? All right, so that's the first project. Then the second project is to say how something like language, the signs of language are related to that. And the rough claim is, 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 uh, yeah, the rough claim is rather striking, maybe. What I want to claim is that signs like language signs, thought signs, etc., um, when they are working properly, when they are true, when they are correct, um, and when they got to be correct by, in a normal way, you know, not, not just by accident, you could have ac accidentally have beliefs that are true, but when they got to be true in a normal way, that they actually carry information in the same way that black clouds, they carry information about rain. So that basically understanding language has a surprising similarity to simply recognizing that it's a trumpet when you hear it. You know, so words, that words actually, uh, I, I want to argue that words actually carry information. Uh, when the sentences, you know, when, when they're in true sentences, <laughs> and those true sentences were arrived at normally, uh, in the way in which historically has uh, accounted for the proliferation of the mechanisms that, that do this stuff, um, that in those cases that uh, the language carries natural is it the language is a natural sign um, of what it's about? So, all right. So that's the connection. So then the question is, all right. So what makes language different? And the answer is that language has been purposefully designed to carry information. By purposefully, I simply mean by natural selection, by learning, by uh, you know various analogs of natural selection. That uh, the mechanisms that produce and understand language, or that produce and understand any intentional sign, are mechanisms that have been designed to do that. So it's not by accident. When you speak a true sentence to a friend, it's not by accident that it carries natural information, right? Language is designed to carry natural information, and that's what makes it different from just ordinary natural information. It's, you know, it's, it's designed natural inf information. Is that? Is, yeah. So we want to charge again, <laughs> Carrie? Or, yeah. Yeah. No. Um, so let me let me just you know speaking of conventional signs and um, in in this part of the book in particular, I was I was thinking of um, you know the pragmatic semantics. Um, you know, you, and I noticed that you had you know you had a couple of references like to Robin Karsten or Francois Recanati and. Um, uh, can you can you say something about you know your view of um, uh, of meaning of these conventional signs? 
the, you know, one of the debates here is the extent to which the meaning of a, of a linguistic item is, uh, you know, lexically encoded or core or context independent. I mean, there's a number of different ways of referring to the, roughly the same phenomenon. And, um, uh, of course, the pragmatic semanticists say there's not very much that is um, lexically encoded, you might say, in, in, in the meaning. Um, how, where, where do you stand on that? And, and it, you know, it seems like you would be much more of a, you know, uh, well, I mean, you, you, you just, um, you know, the, your description of unicefs as being particulars, and um, it, it seems to lend itself to a a uh, fairly fairly radical you know indeterminacy of of meaning um, and a very pragmatic semantic e type view. So could you could you say something about um, you know Lex? Uh, I think the symptoms you are seeing are not symptoms of the cause you're suggesting. Let me see if I can because um, uh, yeah I um, one of the things I try to do. You know, people talk about this is the literal meaning, and then then you have this compositionality, and then you get different meanings. Um, one of the questions I want to ask is: All right, tell me, really, what constitutes that this is the literal meaning? And everybody sort of assumes: Oh, well, you know, there's the literal meaning, right? And then there's compositionality, and then we we churn out meanings from. Of, of whole sentences. Um, so my question is, what, what constitutes that this is the literal meaning? And my my claim claim here is that if we we can look at language uh, in a very interesting way, you can look at language as actually um, having an evolutionary history. In this sense, I mean, not that not that somehow or other. The word "dog" is somehow or other a better word, a better sound than anything else to <laughs> to stand for dogs. Um, but an evolutionary history, in the sense that uh, evolution is very interested in symbiosis and the way in which, um, say, different animals can actually develop traits that are coordinate, such that they can work together on something. Um, so the the uh, what, what language is, it's, of course, the development of coordination between speakers and hearers. But, um, all right, so my claim then is that you can look at, you can ask yourself, what is the function of a term in language? And what you can mean by that, interestingly, is what is it that accounts for it continuing to be used by speakers in roughly the same way and understood by hearers in roughly the same way? What is it that accounts for its proliferation? Or you can go back, uh, to, you know, thinking in Darwinian terms, what accounts for its survival? What accounts for its survival um, with, without changing its meaning? Right? What, what is it doing that accounts for its survival? All right. So I take it that the, that the very central question to be asked about any part of speech, any, um, any idiom, you know, uh, whatever, is what's its survival value? What's it doing? Um, now, what that gives you is a very different picture of language than perhaps as usual. You have to think then um, 
You have to think in terms of, of what some linguists call constructions. A construction is not, two things are not cons the same construction because they sound alike or look alike. Two things are the same construction, although they are uh, often said because not only do they sound alike, but they have the same meaning. So if you have homonyms, they're different constructions. Well, my claim is that, is that what really corresponds to a construction is you can think of it as a lineage, is a, 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 a string of reproduced cases. You know, dog, 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 reproduce, 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 reproduce. I'm going to ask, why does it continue to be reproduced? What's it doing? Um, all right, so that so that that was where you would look for literal meaning would be in what is a what, you know let's look for a lineage let's look for something that's being reproduced and reproduced and reproduced and reproduced to do this particular job but if you do that then it's going to turn out that that um, what shall I say not only is there <laughs> Not only that they're homonyms, but that there are also words and phrases that are related to each other, but that may, as a matter of fact, proliferate quite independently. And uh, people who study language have recognized this, that, uh, that well, people learn a huge number of phrases of, um, well, they, people call them constructions, right? That are copied and copied and copied and copied, and that's what's learned rather than rather than learning a lot of individual words and then putting them together every time you make a sentence. That's just not how it works psychologically. Big chunks are copied, and that means that big chunks uh, have can have a literal semantic meaning without taking them apart, without deriving that from the from the internal structure. Right, and it also means that there can be a lot more homonyms, as it were, in the language than you might think. That is, independent lineages that are proliferating the same sound with somewhat different uses. But I use it this way because other people used it that way. So, uh, so what this does is to is to is to suggest that there are a lot more literal meanings than you would have thought, <laughs> and that most, I think. Uh, a huge proportion, at least, of what uh, has been taken to be to require pragmatics to explain is actually explained as a literal meaning. It's been reproduced and reproduced and reproduced to mean that. So one of, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of of of, of problems that you address um, in terms of having, you know, how uh, info signs, um, you know, relate to the the things that they that they signify. Um, and there's two two in particular that that you that you discuss at, at some length. Um, one is the the strength of correlation problem, and the other is the reference class problem. And um, I was just wondering if you could say a little bit about about these two um, issues that that arise. You know, I take it that there you know there's even though there is a lot of um, you know you have these lineages and and there's a lot more. Sounds very you know polysemic in a way. Um, there's still stability there, right? And um, uh, so, could you could you say something about both of those problems: the strength of correlation problem and then the reference class problem? All right. The discussion of the strength of correlation and the reference problem was in an attempt to define infosigns. Infosigns, as you remember, are are something prior to 
in intentional songs. So this, we're talking about something that's more fundamental than language here. That uh, it, we were talking about language when language is functioning. When I say functioning properly, that is functioning in the way that has accounted for its survival and not in ways that, you know, <laughs> not in waves that are not going to continue and be reproduced, but in ways that, you know. Okay. So, um, so, so one project that is just defining natural signs is one way of putting it, though I call them inf info signs, signs that carry information. Um, and one classic way of doing that, and at least a modern classical way of doing that, is by saying that uh, a sign is something, uh, the relation between a sign and what it signifies is, is correlation. That there's, a co that there's a correlation between these two. So that, uh, or put it this way, that um, when the sign occurs, there's a better chance of its, what it's signified occurring <laughs> than if the sign hadn't occurred. So there's a correlation between the, uh, the sign and the probability of the, of the signified, right? So, all right, so I, I kind of take off from that. And I say the problem, the problem here is people often don't, people often simply talk about what's the probability of X having happened, you know? There's no such thing as a probability of something having happened without a reference class. Um, do 18-year-olds have more accidents than, <laughs> than, than older people, right? 18-year-olds where? At what culture? At what time? You know, uh, whenever you do statistics, you have a, you have a, a ring around a reference class, and it turns out that if you think very hard about this, you'll see that you have to that that the problem here is that you would have to say what reference class was involved in order to say, oh, it's a matter of correlations. So, um, so the, uh, what shall I say? This is this is not not an easy not an issue issue. But uh, roughly, my conclusion here is that it turns out that being a natural sign of something really is like, what shall I say, being a sign for an animal is like being food. Whether or not something is food depends on the animal who wants to eat it, right? <laughs> Similarly, whether or not something is going to count as information as carrying as carrying information is going to be relative to an animal. It's going to be relative to the capacities of that animal, relative to the uh, relative to the place in which the animal is lives and moves, um, and, and that you have to take you know you have to take account of this. Um, anyway, that the, it, that has a lot of interesting results that I can't can't go into here, but. Um, but all right, so you can see that that that's that's part of how context then enters the matter here, right? Context is what reference class are we in? Uh, in that sense, it's very important. But but you know, there's a, there's another way in which context is very important, and and which uh, I think you may have in mind, Carrie. I'm not sure. Um, what I've I've also claimed that in the case of language, very often pieces of the environment are actually part of a sentence. In other words, to think that language is only uh, utterances 
it's confusion. That as a matter of fact, utterances placed in juxtaposition with objects, the, the entire configuration is often what's the sign. And so this is why I give an analysis of indexicals, for instance, which, which uh, and of uh, demonstratives, in which the thing demonstrated uh, is actually a piece of the sign, <laughs> like um, a sign that says, no lorries on a British bridge. <laughs> uh, part of the sign is the bridge. You haven't the slightest idea what that means unless you see that it's on a bridge. Now, the bridge is part of the sign. It stands for itself. So actually, the theme that the, the themes that there are things that uh, in certain contexts can sort of stand for themselves is also a, a, a theme that uh, weaves in and out of the of the book here and there with various effects. But. Right. So that 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 sounds a bit like you know the extended mind thesis. You know, Andy Clark and David Chalmers, I suppose. Are you are you endorsing that sort of a view? No. Okay. No. no. <laughs> well, what? Why not? No, I mean this would not. Well, I don't think that any mental signs <laughs> are composed partly of things in the world. No, I, I think that's a, a quite a different, uh, quite a different question. What shall I say? I think the question of whether mind is partly external is unfortunately largely a verbal problem. Not, you know, I don't think that there's very much substance there. But I, I, I'd have to, you know, back that back that up when I, yeah. Let me. Uh, there's. You also introduced this this concept of a reproductively established families. I don't. You know, it plays an important role, and I don't know if you would want, want to go into that to flesh out what you've already said. Or, All right, that, well, that was a term that was defined back in language thought and other biological categories, and um, I'm not going to. I won't define it. I won't try to go through that here. But just the way it applies to language is fairly straightforward. And that is what I was talking about, lineages, the word dog being copied and copied and reproduced and reproduced and reproduced, and perhaps phrases being reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. They have lineages. Um, those are those families where, where one thing is reproduced from another, from another, from another. Those are reproductively established families. So, you know, well, the broader definition, uh, we don't need to play with here, I think. Of reproductively established family. What would you say are the main um, main differences or advances or modifications um, that you introduce um, in this book, as opposed to you know the the work that it has built on? Maybe my own prior work or, or, or work of others. My own my own prior work. Yeah. Um, the explication of unicef the. Um, I talk quite a lot about empirical concepts, right? Starting with language thought and other biological categories, and 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 going through unclear and confused ideas. It's very a lot about this. What I was working toward in my mind, I guess, was the notion of of a unicept, a unitracker, and you know the combination of a unitracker with its unicept, or unicept with its unitracker. Um, and so that a lot of the things that I said earlier uh, uh, about em empirical concepts. I would now say that was a very bad, very bad terminology. And if you look at it as, as a discussion of unitrackers and unicepts, it'll make a little more sense, I think. So, uh, so I'm definitely carrying that on, but also ch changing it. But I would say, having discovered, I guess, how very, very different 
in so many respects, the notion of a unicept and a tracker is from the notion, the classical notion of a concept. So you know, so that's that's one thing that's changed. But um, also the whole business of uh, talking about information theory in the, the last half of the book, and also spelling out something about uh, spelling out the notion of of the literal semantic meaning. Um, and it's also some things at the end of the book. I mean, I, I talk about some specific problems people have had about language. Talking about, well, talking about indexicals and demonstratives, for instance, I hadn't done that before. About intentional context, I have more to say. Uh, but also tackling problems like, uh, what do you do with uh, definite descriptions that aren't definite, right? The, the, the dog. <laughs> well, I saw the dog, right? So, uh, you know, talking about some ways that language works, uh, that you could you could look at language somewhat differently from, through these eyes and, and some of the results you get. Uh, okay. Um, so, uh, well, one of the things you do to, at, the, at the end is to draw certain parallels, to talk a little bit about perception, right? Um, and perceptual context. Oh, yeah, could you yeah. could you you know say something about you know the perceptual content and you know sign content? Yeah, that, well, that's another huge issue, isn't it? Yeah. Um, actually, what I do is to try to back up a claim that uh, I think most people have found quite bizarre, <laughs> and that is that in understanding that understanding language is actually a variety of something like perception. Um, that, uh, yeah, the processing, the processing and understanding language is like perceptual processing. So uh, uh, this requires looking, looking at perception um, in, in rather a different way. So one thing, one thing uh, that, I, that I do here with perception, I, I, I would like to understand perception or try to argue that you can understand perception um, as interpretation of signs, you know the classic classical view that what you do is to, in, in, say, in visual perception, is to try to reconstruct what could have caused the, <laughs> what could have caused the uh, visual sensations, etc. Um, you know, to sort of uh, reversing the, you, you have to somehow rather reverse the process by which the object hits your eye. And <laughs> um, so I want to claim instead that no, it's like recognizing a sign, um, and recognizing the sign for something. I do not have to have the slightest idea how the sign got to be there. By what process the sign got to be there? If I could recognize the sign, I may not have the slightest idea why those signs are around. So recognizing a sign is very different from understanding anything about the process by which the sign was produced. So. Uh, so anyway, it, it, yeah, it turns out that, that that makes quite a lot of difference, I think, if you look at perception that way. There's some Gibsonian tinges here, but yeah. So I, we're, we're, we are just about out of time, and I, I like to ask what um, what's on the immediate horizon for you. Are you working on, well, I don't know, maybe perception or perceptual content, or what's, what are you, what's, your, what's your next step at this point? Philosophically, all right. Uh, all right. So I'm working on a, a couple of things that will be coming out. Um, one of them is I said that I wanted to understand the meaning of us, 
I wanted to understand linguistic meaning by trying to understand what accounts for the reproduction of the words and, and, and syntactic structures, et cetera. You know, what are they doing that accounts for their reproduction? Um, and what I, I have an essay now that I'm trying to, I, I never had looked at all of the things that language does besides representing. <laughs> it has many other functions than representing. So um, anyway, I, so I have a, a, I'm working on an essay at the moment that, that is a more careful explanation, I hope, of what it means to say that you're looking for the, for the actual function of a linguistic term. Um, and then a number of tentative suggestions about puzzling, uh, puzzling words about how, how, how uh, probability words about probable uh, words about existence, uh, identity, uh, I don't know, there are a bunch of them that, that are, are sort of classic philosophical, if-thens, you know, a, a number of classic questions that I, that I think uh, a lot of ca light can be cast on by looking at function instead of by looking for truth conditions. Okay, well. So anyway, that's one. But the other is that I'm, uh, I'm also working a little on the, um, on the current context, trying to make very much more simple and obvious um, the, the notion of representation and what, it, what, what makes a representation count as correct or incorrect. Trying to make this more straightforward, more obvious uh, than, than perhaps I had before, because I think there's been some strange controversies about <laughs> whether there are mental representations, right? Right. <laughs> so. Okay, well, um, you know, I'm sorry, but we, we are out of time. Um, but I appreciate your taking the time to, uh, to talk with us about your new book. It's been, it's been a real pleasure on my part. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Kerry, for giving me the opportunity to do this. Yeah. You've been listening to my interview with Ruth Garrett Milligan. We've been talking about her new book, Beyond Concepts, Unicep's Language and Natural Information, which is just out from Oxford University Press. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.